Good evening and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event on the modern mind. Because of COVID-19, we're still working remotely, so thank you so much for joining us online for this panel discussion. Welcome from this nursery slash home office in Dublin to you wherever you are. Uh, thanks for joining us. Our topic this evening is the modern mind. The philosophy of mind is naturally a centrepiece of philosophy, uh, philosophical thought and education and long has been. Tonight, we're trading on the ambiguity in the term modern to allow for a discussion of the mind that begins with early modern polymath Descartes and traces the trajectory of thought through the ideas of Charles Darwin and evolutionary thinking right up to the contemporary moment in philosophy of cognitive science, where we find ideas like virtual reality and embodied cognition. With us to discuss these ideas are our panellists, who are Adrian Alsmith, a lecturer in philosophy at King's College London, Tim Lewins, Professor of Philosophy of Science at Cambridge University, and Lawrence Later, Associate Tutor at Birkbeck University and founder of the London Cartesian Circle. My name is Claire Moriarty. I'm a philosopher working at Trinity College Dublin, and I'm a fellow of the Forum. This event is co-sponsored by the Royal Institute of Philosophy and by the British Society for the History of Philosophy. So a big thanks to them for that. The format for the event will be as follows. We'll have about 50 to 55 minutes of discussion amongst the panelists and about 20 minutes at the end for audience Q&A. There are two ways to ask questions in the discussion, so they depend on what way you're watching the event. If you're watching us on Zoom, you can use the Q&A functionality that you can hopefully see on your screen now and just drop a question in there. And then if you're watching on Facebook Live, you can just pop a question into the comments and we'll get to as many of them as we can towards the end of the event. So, Lauren, I'm going to come to you first. Why begin this discussion of the modern idea of the mind with Descartes? What's so distinctive about him as a thinker in that way? Yes, I, I think this is a really great question. Um, and I, I guess my answer to it is that uh, Descartes' view is kind of our intuitive view, I think. Um, and, it, and it's certainly a view that's kind of embedded in our language. Uh, so anybody who knows anything about uh, Descartes will know that Descartes made a distinction between the mind and the body. So the mind is sort of the thinking part of the human being, the body, um, the physical part of the human being. And I think uh, if we think about sort of sayings that we have, like like mind over matter, um, all, all of these sorts of things that we say uh, do seem to kind of presuppose this sort of view that we're kind of things that have bodies. Even just saying, you know, my body <laughs> is something that sort of seems to presuppose this this kind of dualist idea. And so I think it's it's kind of an intuitive starting point. Um, so yeah, can you tell again. us a little bit about what is so what is so distinctive about this kind of theory and you know what is Cartesian dualism? I know it's a huge question for for a, you know for a not that long an event, but can you give us uh, either a reminder or uh, an introduction to to his way of thinking about these things? Yeah, um, so, so I guess uh, maybe it's sort of it's it's good to sort of tell the story that Descartes tells. So Descartes begins um, his most famous work, The Meditations, uh, with this project um, of, of doubt. What he's trying to do is he's, he's trying to work out what it is that we can know for certain. Um, and so he, he goes through these kind of levels of doubt. First of all, he doubts um, what it is that we get from our senses. So he sort of says, well, you know, we can be wrong about things that we perceive. Like when you're looking at something that's very far away, you might think that it looks... Uh, round but when in fact it's it's square um, then he talks about the kind of the dreaming doubt the idea that we might be in a dream and that would be sort of indistinguishable from um, reality or what we what we take to be reality uh, and then he introduces the kind of the big player um, the the evil demon uh, who who can deceive us he sort of says that there's this 
or he, he entertains the possibility that there could be this all-powerful deceiver who deceives us about e even sort of seemingly certain mathematical truths like two plus three equals five. Um, so he's doubting everything. He's sort of thinking, like, I, I, can, I can call everything into question that I've taken to be certain. And then he gets to this kind of bedrock, um, which is the idea that, well, if I'm doubting, if I'm, if I'm sitting here doubting uh, that all these things exist, that all these things sort of really exist, um, then there's something doubting, there's something thinking. Um, and that's something that you, you can't be um, deceived about because if you're being deceived, there's something being deceived, right? So there's something doing the thinking. Um, and that really is, uh, is what Descartes takes the mind to be. It's, it's thinking, it's thought. Um, he says that, you know, something that, that wills, affirms, denies, has sensory perceptions, imagines, has memory, um, this is the, the thinking part of us. Um, and so that really is the kind of the, the Cartesian mind. It's, it's that thought. Um, and that's what he, he takes to be um, the thing that we can be absolutely certain uh, that, ex that exists, um, that we exist as thinking things. Um, of course, later on, he, he comes to, um, to sort of build back up. And, and uh, of course, uh, he thinks that he... Um, or he, he, he comes back to bodies and the idea of bodies. And of course, bodies exist too. Um, he takes the human being to be a union between the mind and the body. Um, so that's what we are as human beings. So we're, um, we're thinking things that are united, intermingled with these physical bodies. Um, so that, that, that's his account of, of the mind in a nutshell. Oh, thank you so much for taking the task. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what kind of things motivate Descartes' take here? You've told us a little bit about how it's such a powerful idea and how it figures in the account of the meditations, but is it a kind of coming from a religious point of view? Is he trying to do scientific epistemology? What uh, What's going on when he sort of is telling us this is how it is? Yeah, so I I guess that there are, um, you know, Descartes, Descartes was a religious man and God is definitely um, a part of his uh, part of his philosophical account of things um, and there was some concern uh, to um, to think about questions concerning the afterlife so thinking about um, the way that the mind or the soul continues after the death of the body was something um, that he was concerned uh, about but I do think that um, if Descartes were around right now I think that we would probably if, if we look at his sort of corpus as a whole we'd probably describe him as a scientist rather than a philosopher um, I think you know we we get this um, this uh, bit of philosophy in the meditations that I've just described this sort of project of doubt and working out what it is that we can know for certain that's sort of very distinctively philosophical but if we take his works as a whole um, he writes you know a lot of a lot of mathematics so a lot of the um, the mathematics that that you will have likely learned in school um, come from uh, Descartes um, but he also writes a great deal uh, about sort of science topics that we would now um, call scientific um and yeah I, I think that uh the human being as a kind of subject that he wanted to learn about really was was his project what he wanted to do was understand human beings as these mind-body unions and that involved a great deal of what we would now call science um, so it's a little bit of both I think <laughs> um so it's probably quite unfair to Descartes that he's one of the first things that students of philosophy learn in an undergraduate philosophy degree and probably one of the first meditations is one of the first texts that, that students really have a go at trying to skewer in their exam questions. So 
the famous one that everyone seems to remember are problems with uh, the mind being able to cause things to happen in the body. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about that and maybe whether you feel it's fair to, to think he's, he's finished on the basis of those kind of worries? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we do often, I, I think, uh, with, with undergraduate courses, um, sort of intro to philosophy of mind courses, we get this, often we get this sort of caricature of Descartes' view where we, we have this dualism set up where you have the mind and the body as these completely distinct substances that share nothing in common. Um, and then uh, the question is, well, you know, when, when I think about raising my arm, my arm raises. So how do you explain that? That sort of seems like something that begins in my mind and, and ends with my body. Or likewise, um, you know, the vision, for example, you know, involves my eyes, but then I have these sort of visual ideas. I have, um, you know, ideas of colors and so on. Um, so how is it that these two really distinct things that share nothing in common interact? Um, I, I don't think that it's not a problem. <laughs> so I'm not, not going to try and sort of solve the mind-body problem right here and right now. Fair enough. Um, you don't have long. <laughs> yeah, you don't, don't have long enough to do that. I'm working on it though, so Good. stay tuned. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I guess, uh, yeah, these these problems um, are problems, but I, I think that uh, that kind of, um, I, I suppose that the... Um, these problems don't seem to be sort of Descartes' central concern. Um, so perhaps it's sort of a bit unfair to just sort of set up this view and then immediately um, kind of shoot him down. And often I do think that there's some sort of oversimplification that takes place when, when we're first introduced um, to Descartes' philosophy. Um, one very brief thing I can say, I guess, is that I think uh, in, in sort of contemporary philosophical debates, there's been this progression towards thinking about causation as a single notion so uh, as being kind of one kind of relation so you've got this cause and effect relation and that's just sort of one thing there's one kind of thing that's a cause um, and actually I think that if you look at the history of philosophy um, that's not really true so famously you've got Aristotle had had four kinds of cause the Stoics had like a hundred kinds of cause <laughs> um, the medieval thinkers again had, had many different kinds of causes that they conceived and, and Descartes as well um, talks about more than one kind of cause and I think that that is something that sort of is is quite a simple point but does often um not get mentioned in these sorts of debates. Um, so yes, while we can say maybe uh, straightforward, sort of efficient, as Descartes would say, efficient causation can't take place between the mind and the body, but that's not to say that there isn't a kind, uh, a species of causal relation between the mind and the body. Um, so yeah, there's definitely kind of detail there that, um, that, that ought to be included. Okay, so maybe Descartes can help himself to some sort of pluralism around causation and try and yeah find a way to wriggle free of, of what looks like a, an objection to just one kind of causation yeah absolutely I think he just thinks it's a different kind it's just a different kind of relation so he sort of thinks well you know we understand these kinds of causes in one way but we should understand this kind of cause in, in just a different way um, so for him it's not a massive problem or I think you know he doesn't seem to see it as like a huge um, insurmountable problem okay well thank you so much for, uh, for such a great summary uh, under pressure and um, we might move to Tim now just to sort of bring out the ideas of one of the other big thinkers we're interested in. Mm. So Charles Darwin, very famous guy, a lot of work on evolution. Um, but did you think much about the mind, Tim? Is that something we, we see him talking about a lot? Fortunately for us this evening, he did think about the mind. Um, Wonderful. <laughs> it would be, be a bit of a shame if the answer to that question was no, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, Quite so, it, it, I mean, obviously 
a lot of Darwin's work doesn't concern the mind, at least not directly. So he wrote whole books on orchids, on earthworms. He wrote about things that aren't even living. So he wrote on the formation of coral reefs. There's not much on the mind in The Origin of Species either. But um, you do see the mind as a pretty consistent concern of Darwin's uh, right through his his working life, really. So he gets very excited early on uh, in London, um, well before The Origin of Species was written about maybe there being a lot of potential uh, in a kind of evolutionary view for our ability to understand the mind. I just mentioned that he doesn't talk about the mind very much in The Origin of Species, but he lays out this um, very uh, pregnant uh, promissory note where he says, I think in the future, there's going to be a wonderful scope for research based on the idea that all psychological faculties are acquired by gradation from earlier ancestors. So we might have to take a gradualist approach to the development of the mind itself. Um, you then get a, a real sort of um, dedicated patch of work on the mind um, quite a long time after the publication of The Origin of Species. So The Origin of Species comes out in 1859. Uh, in 1871, he publishes The Descent of Man. Uh, and, and in that book, Darwin is, is particularly concerned to try to understand one aspect of our thinking, um, what he calls the moral sense. So the idea that we have a psychological ability to discern right from wrong, or at least we think we can discern right from wrong. Um, and then you get a whole book devoted to emotional expression uh, in, in humans and other animals. Can you tell us a bit about that? That sounds, that sounds great. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's an interesting, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to say about that book. I mean, the, it's, it's interesting partly because of how extremely un-Darwinian the book is in some ways. So... Um, so, for example, on, on the back cover blurb of, of my edition of, of The Expression of Emotions, there's a, a puff from Richard Dawkins where he gets very excited and he says, this has been tremendously influential, uh, long predates Freud and will be continuing to illuminate psychology even after Freud's been dead and buried and forgotten. Um, but... Uh, while Dawkins is, of course, known for being a real um, enthusiast for the explanatory power of natural selection, natural selection is barely mentioned at all anywhere in the expression of emotions. Um, and actually, although Darwin sees human emotional expression as having its roots in earlier animal ancestors, and he draws all of these parallels between expression of emotions in humans and expression of emotions in other animals, he doesn't actually credit it to the operation of natural selection. He thinks something much more like what we now think of as a Lamarckian form of inheritance is, is involved there. So it's a- Do you mind explaining what that is? Just yeah, for, sure. For me. So, um, so, so the idea roughly, so, so Darwin thought that um, habits, which might initially be consciously performed uh, in animals and also in humans, uh, would eventually express themselves automatically uh, in offspring. And these are ideas that people would very rarely give any, any credit to now. But, you know, Darwin thought that um, if the blacksmith uh, consciously spends his life bashing away at the forge, uh, then actually that habit will result in the blacksmith's kids uh, getting big muscles uh, pretty much for free uh, in, in, in future generations. So th this is what Darwin calls use inheritance sometimes. And we now think of as being associated with, with Lamarck. 
Um, but it's a it's a Darwinian idea too, and, and gets a lot of um, uh, credit in in the expression of emotions. So I suppose one of the things we think of Darwin as doing, well, I do, and I don't know him well, but uh, is bringing sort of humans and animals a little bit closer together in the way we think about their development and their behaviours. Uh, do we see similarities in? I mean, for for Darwin, are emotions similar in in human beings and other yeah. creatures? Yeah, absolutely, and, and and this is something that's really important right through right through Darwin's work. So, um, you know, for Darwin, obviously, um, all species are descended from maybe just a very few ancestors in common, maybe just one. He's not quite sure, but he sees life as having this great tree-like structure, and so it's important for him to show continuity at all points between the different twigs or the different branches on that tree, um, and so that means that Darwin doesn't think of, well, in some ways, he doesn't think of the human mind as anything special. He thinks that all organisms pretty much have some form of mentality. There are certain points really late in his career when he even starts flirting with the idea that you can think of the roots of plants in the way that they sense uh, sources of nutrients or sources of water as having a kind of quasi-consciousness, a kind of quasi-mentality. So he, he sees mentality as, as distributed kind of throughout the evolutionary tree. Um, in terms of emotional expression, he, he absolutely thinks that, you know, why is it that your hairs stand on end when you're scared? Uh, well, he thinks that this probably uh, owes itself to earlier ancestors puffing themselves up, either their feathers or their fur, puffing those up to make themselves look bigger and therefore more uh, fierce in the face of a foe. So he thinks that you can understand human emotional expression as inherited from a, from a common ancestor. And that's why he thinks that fear in humans has all of these kind of isomorphisms, has all of these similarities with, you know, let's say fear in, in dogs um, or, or other creatures. So, so in some ways, humans are nothing special. At the same time, Darwin's pretty clear that although all creatures have some form of mentality, he's nonetheless very clear that humans kind of have it to a degree that's far developed beyond anybody else. And, and particularly the person with it the most developed is usually Isaac Newton, as far as Darwin goes. Okay, smart lad. We all have to, have to allow that. Uh, it seems like that already poses a real contrast with at least my understanding of Descartes, which is that humans are super special, right, Lauren? Is that, I mean, it's sort of interested to know from both of you, do, do you see a kind of line of, of negative influence here? Like would Darwin have been responding in any sort of way to, to Descartes' idea that I think did Descartes, is that correct that Descartes didn't really think animals thought in a proper sense? Yeah. So, so I guess that, that that's another thing that uh, is perhaps a sort of slight oversimplification. He, he did sort of attribute a great deal of capacities to bodies um so he he talks about imagination and memory and and sensory perception and, and even passion and emotion as something uh that 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 is body involving and therefore there's a kind of bodily component that that, that animals have um he also had a dog called mr scratch <laughs> which i love i just think it's funny that he has such a sort of human name for for his his dog i just like, like that little fact um but yes it's true that that human beings are something special in that we have we have these minds um that 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 animals don't have um yeah for him tim is there is there any kind of recognition of that sort of contrast or I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if Darwin's, I mean, I, I don't, I can't think of any evidence that Darwin is specifically kind of responding to Descartes, 
On the other hand, Darwin, I think, was quite influenced by um, the sort of British empiricist tradition. So Darwin's certainly not the first person to suggest that in some way or another, the, the mentality of humans and animals um, uh, is built on very similar foundations. You get that idea very much in, in Hume, for example, as well. And, and Darwin, Darwin read Hume and I think, I think was, was quite influenced by Hume. The difference with Darwin really is, is not so much that nobody else has ever thought to posit these similarities, but that Darwin gives uh, an explanation for why there should be those similarities uh, in terms of inheritance from, from common ancestors. Okay, that seems really powerful. Um, and then just maybe before we, we get to Adrian, I was wondering, does sort of Darwin spark then a new way of thinking? Do we, do we see a kind of trajectory of thought coming out of Darwin's approach to the mind that is, that is sort of popular after that? Or Yeah, yeah Darwin's legacy is really complicated, partly because Darwin has a, has a style of, of writing that often brings in all kinds of different, very eclectic themes and modes of explanation, which means that lots of different people get influenced by lots of different aspects of his thinking. But I mean, just to kind of throw out a few examples, um, very, very soon after, after Darwin's death, there's an effort by people like George Romanus to sketch out this, this so-called comparative vision of psychology, whereby you think of mental faculties of the whole kind of tree of life as being descended from uh, common ancestors. And, and Romanus really tries to do that sort of sketching in, in quite a lot of detail. Um, you know, much, much later, um, actually Darwin's work on expression of emotions really gets kind of revived, um, overhauled and endorsed, albeit with much better methods um, by people like Paul Ekman writing, you know, as, as late as the, as the 1970s. Um, so there's, there is this kind of rediscovery of, of Darwin's work later on. There's a kind of period as well when people sort of go off Darwin a bit, um, because actually similar to what Lauren was just saying, you get, you know, Darwin was completely obsessed by dogs, owned many dogs through his life. And because of his gradualist commitments, in other words, because of the idea that he sees um, moral, sorry, because he sees mental faculties as being gradually um, modified from common ancestors, he's really, really keen to see quite, quite sophisticated mental capacities in other creatures. So he'll talk about um, apes feeling shame. Uh, he'll talk about sheep being embarrassed and so forth. Um, and, and you get this turn against that in, in the sort of kind of mid part of the 20th century where psychologists think, oh, if we're going to get serious about doing our job, we, we'd better not throw out these mental attributions too uh, liberally. Maybe we should sort of rein in the attributions of kind of complex forms of thought until we really feel as though we've got decisive evidence. So they, they would think of Darwin as in some ways being a bit too uh, trigger happy in terms of attributing uh, mental states to other creatures. Okay, so a good reminder that important thought often comes with a proper phase of backlash. Um, Adrian, so we've done a bit of a leap from Descartes to Darwin and now another leap. Uh, can you tell us a bit about cognitive science, especially maybe any role for, for dogs in it, given the strength of that so far? But yeah, can you tell us a little bit about, about what cognitive science is and how it approaches questions of the mind? Right, yeah, so I, I think that cognitive science, the very idea of cognitive science is an interesting entry point for the, the contemporary study of the mind for, for many reasons. Um, one of which is that it captures 
a rather federal contemporary relationship between the many different disciplines that study the mind. Uh, so cognitive science, to actually answer your question, is, uh, is an umbrella term for the multidisciplinary study of the mind. So under the umbrella, you find psychology, neuroscience, computer science, anthropology, evolutionary biology, as well as philosophy. And although they can all be loosely characterized as having a, a common subject matter, people working in each of these disciplines use very different methods and have largely interdisciplinary concerns, concerns within their disciplines that are bound up with more specific research aims. Um, so if you contrast this right with with earlier historical periods, such as Descartes, um, where insofar as there are different ways of studying the mind, they're all conceived of as within the domain of philosophy. Uh, so experimental psychology, for instance, only emerged as a distinct discipline in the 19th century, way after Descartes' time, right? Um, but to kind of continue the early line of thought, uh, the, the early history of, um, of cognitive science um, is, I think, uh, a, a, a period in which uh, people are developing a reaction to uh, a, a pattern of thinking in, in psychology, which uh, has, I think, some very kind of interesting Cartesian themes. Um, but I don't know if I'm, if I'm making too much of one answer to the first question. <laughs> no, I mean, please feel free to expand on that. So do you, you think there's a kind of, there's a, a reactionary thread in the kind of emergence of a cognitive science approach to the mind? Like what would it be reacting to there? Well, so, so I guess the background is that, um, that as cognitive science was emerging, um, it was emerging in reaction to behavioristic psychology. Um, so behavioristic psychology restricted itself, um, had these methodological principles that restricted itself to examining the relationship between strictly observable uh, kind of facts and events. Um, so observable stimuli and observable behavioral responses were, were the kind of focus of psychology. And so talk of unobservables, such as conscious experiences and thoughts and beliefs and desires were kind of banished from, from scientific discussion. But, but it's by the late 50s, uh, there was a, kind of a very different intellectual trend emerging where, where it seemed like there was a range of evidence that seemed to require extensive theorizing about some uh, kind of internal if you like, unobservable um, uh, structures that cause us to behave in the ways that we do. Um, and so, so I guess, uh, so I, the, uh, let me just kind of bring out the, the Cartesian themes that, that develop from even kind of this basic idea that we need to, to focus on the, as it were, the kind of inner causes of behavior. Um, so, so there was really a, uh, a theme that that emerged across psychology, computer science, and um, and also philosophy that um, is kind of loosely characterised by the idea of the mind as an information processor that's in the business of constructing and storing information 
in internal structures called representations, which carry information about the world. And the, the core function of the mind is to be a, a general purpose device for the construction and deployment of accurate representations. Uh, and so kind of this brings me to the, the Cartesian theme that I was kind of um, interested to, to get on the table, um, which is that these representations fit very well the role of, um, of I guess, what Descartes would call ideas. Um, so there are, of course, major differences that I'll leave to others, like perhaps Lauren, to point out. But um, just to emphasize a kind of interesting thematic similarity, which is that in these kind of early, slightly reactionary days, uh, cognitive science was proposing a, an explanation of the mind in terms of, of, of structures and entities that were fundamentally separate from the world. So uh, if, if our explanations of the mind ought to focus on internal representations, which as it were kind of stand in for the worldly objects and events that we experience and think about and and act upon, then, then looking at the world in understanding the mind uh, is looking in the wrong place. <laughs> you need to look at how it's represented, right? Uh, you need to look at kind of what's going on within the mind. Um, uh, so that's that's a kind of broadly Cartesian theme. Um, and another another theme is that the mind is to be understood in if the mind is to be understood in terms of uh, these internal structures, then, uh, then it seems, at least it seemed to many, that these structures were an abstraction away from the, the biological stuff in which they might be implemented. Um, so one way in which this idea has been developed is to think of the mind as the software of the brain. And so just as we can think of uh, computational processes such as algorithms without studying the machines that will implement them, the machines that we're all using now, right? Um, so models of psychological processes can be studied without too much concern for neurobiological details. And this, this I think, fits well with, with um, the contrast between uh, Descartes' work on the relationship between kind of the domains of science of the day, right? Um, so he, he saw... Um, I think it's right to say that he saw biological mechanisms as, a, as a, just a certain kind of physical me mechanism, right? And in, in that sense, biology would be reducible to physics. But he thought we needed a rather different form of explanation for psychology. So this idea of, of the mind being a very separate domain of explanation is a kind of another, as it were, Cartesian theme. Uh, also, just to remind the other speakers, feel free to, to interject at any point as well. So it's, it seems like we have, like, with Descartes, we've got the mind very much as a sort of spiritual substance or to be understood that way. And then a move into biology. And it sounds like cognitive science, or at least a certain strand of it, is interested in functional, algorithmic, kind of a, a sort of more abstracted process. Is that, is that something that's still popular now? Or are we, are, are we moved on again in terms of trends and themes? Well, I think that there's a very complicated intersection of these ideas these days. So, so there's if you if you think about it as there being kind of as it were two sorts of of um, dichotomies: this uh, 
mind-world dichotomy uh, and, uh, and a mental-physical dichotomy. Uh, these both being, as it were, kind of broadly Cartesian dichotomies. Then there, there, are, uh, there are proponents and opponents of both of these, both of these ideas, right? Um, so um, if you think about, say, just the, the mental-physical dichotomy, um, an idea that's, that's um, been uh, developed during the course of the 20th century and it's a very familiar idea these days is the idea that, well, the mind is just the brain, right? Um, and this idea of the mind being an abstraction from, from the, the stuff in which it's implemented is in tension with the idea that mental states just are brain states. Um, so a, a major uh, source of contention within within philosophy, but also within cognitive science more broadly, is just the relationship between, as it were, psychology and neuroscience, or, or whether it is true that mental states just are brain states. Um, uh, but even if, even if, say, it's right that mental states just are brain states, if we are still appealing to some idea of representation in understanding uh, you know, what what characterizes mental processes, that still leaves open the possibility of this other sort of Cartesian dichotomy right, between um, the, the mind and the world. Um, so uh, the, there's a, a different sort of, of debate that, um, that you find amongst, uh, amongst philosophers, but also amongst others, as to whether we need to think about more than just the brain in in thinking about mental processes. Maybe we need to, as, as many um, many propose, uh, we need to think about uh, mental processes as complex complexes of of subtle relationships between the brain, the body, and and our local environment. And um, and in doing so, uh, think about uh, the, the brain as just one part of a broader system uh, that characterizes the, the interesting psychological capacities that we have. Uh, I feel like that's really interesting to raise because I think it will allow maybe a thread through the previous, the previous thinkers as well. I mean, I'd just like to invite the others to comment a bit on the role of mind versus brain or how to think about the relationship between what we sort of conventionally call the mind and brain in in previous well i can i mean i can think of um i can think of one relationship that's that's maybe interesting there in that um that there, there's a so if you think of of explaining everything to do with the mind just in terms of neural structures there's a kind of unit of explanation that's your kind of common currency in all your psychological explanations and and there seems to be something similar with thinking about the gene or kind of selection processes acting on genetic material as your unit of explanation that's common currency um but i, I don't know if that's if that's a really superficial similarity Tim. oh that's very very helpful uh, also i just like to remind the audience that they're they're free to ask questions so on facebook live and in the q a bit of zoom 
Lauren, Tim, this kind of issue of the, the mind versus the brain, is that something we see uh, represented in, in your areas? Shall I, shall I just chip in and say a bit about, about Darwin here? So sure. um, Darwin's, Darwin doesn't pretend to be a philosopher, even though he's very interested in, in philosophy. And so when these questions get really metaphysical, Darwin's tendency is usually just to hedge. So he says things like, he says things like um, the mind is a function of the brain, leaving it a bit unclear whether that means the mind just is the brain or whether maybe how the mind works depends in some way on how the brain works. He certainly thinks they're intimately linked. He, but he, he does say some quite interesting things in, in passing. So at, at one point he says, um, why is it that we find um, the idea that thought is a secretion of the brain um, so much more puzzling than the idea that uh, gravity is a secretion of matter right I mean so in other words what he's saying is what, what why 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 are we so determined to find this weird at all um, why don't we go around saying oh how come gravity is a thing you know how come massive <laughs> exert gravity isn't that weird he says well we don't think it's weird we just think it's how things are built um and so why do we think that there's this you know incredibly puzzling problem about why it is that brains should end up producing this thing called thought and at that point he says um this actually goes back to the very first question you asked me i think clay he he basically says maybe it's just arrogance maybe it's just that because we do the thinking we're determined to think of thinking as especially weird and puzzling in a way that we don't grasp other things yeah. he has some things to say about this but not all that much because most of the time he's focused on trying to grab the problems that he thinks of as tractable and working with those and sort of leaving the metaphysics to um, to others. Yeah. That's student of Hume. Oh, sorry, Kuala. I was just going to say that's interesting. Maybe, maybe Darwin did read Descartes because that, that gravity example is one that Descartes himself uses um, in his correspondence with Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia when she's sort of saying, she's, she's posing this question, right, of, of, of the, the problem of the interaction between the mind and the body. Um, and he says, um, he sort of calls on this sort of Aristotelian idea of gravity, which he doesn't agree with. He says it's the wrong idea of gravity, but if it helps you to think of it, think about the way that sort of gravity, which is this immaterial sort of thing, it's this, well, you know, it's sort of this, this thing that we can conceive of, kind of pushes things down or pulls things down towards the earth. Um, if you want to think of the relationship between the mind and the body like that, then that's sort of maybe close. <laughs> um, that's a kind of example that, that, that he gives. So, so that's, that's interesting. Um, On the issue of the brain, dare I mention the two dreaded words of pineal gland? Do you? I mean, I'm sure too much has been made of it, but do you want to? Yeah, you know, I, I will say something about the Descartes recognizes that the brain is, is of central importance, right? And he he calls the brain um, the seat of the soul. Uh, so, so he recognizes that the brain is sort of very heavily involved in um, in our sort of in in our capacities, our various mental capacities. Um, but the, the the reason that he thought that the pineal gland was important is um, it's not it's not a stupid reason given given that uh, you know he, he was writing when he was and and the kind of you know um, access to information that he had uh, he he thought that the pineal gland was important because it's the only part of the brain that he could identify that isn't uh, duplicated that that doesn't have a another side and so he thought since we have sort of united perception since we sort of have one conscious 
experience that's, that's this united experience even though we have two eye, two ears and two eyes and, and so on um that 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 little bit of the brain must be important because it's the only bit of the brain that's uh that's not um a double so not a crazy reason <laughs> oh, that's really helpful i've never heard that before so yeah, <laughs> Adrian, I was wondering about, so there's uh, the understanding of body uh, and self-consciousness seems to also be important to the way current theorists are engaging with questions on the mind. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so in, in lots of different ways. Um, and I mean, but, well, one way that's, that follows on maybe interestingly, interestingly from um, the, the tendency to to wonder actually what is special about um, about thinking about the mind um, is that uh, perhaps Descartes is exploiting in some in some places the, the flexibility of our of our mental concepts and especially um, of our conception of ourselves that we're that we're able to think of ourselves as as radically different entities. Um, but yet, kind of one and the same thing. So, uh, so I can, I can think of myself as uh, 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 just under six foot tall, um, and uh, and think of myself greeting my mother in the in the hereafter, right? And and think of uh, you know in heaven, say. Um, and in doing so, I'm kind of referring to one and the same thing, but as as I do so, I'm referring to radically different kinds of entity, right? Um, and so, so what what a lot of uh, of of work on self consciousness recently is is grappling with is both the centrality of of this with flexibility of our self-conception seems to be, uh, but also the ways in which our experience of the body and the ways in which our experience of the environment seem seem to present this body as ourselves. Um, and so a, a kind of interesting relationship between between these two is, is being able to, as it were, um, uh, present bodily structures or kind of bodily like entities and have people refer to them as themselves. Um, so using just say kind of uh, props like rubber hands or, or using virtual avatars um, and having these avatars synchronized with our movements in various ways, uh, people seem compelled to certainly act as if the avatars were themselves um, and and respond to questionnaire statements as if they were themselves, um, and so some people, especially in psycho psychology and neuroscience, see this as as uh, a way of studying uh, self consciousness that both captures the centrality of the body in self consciousness, but also captures the the kind of fits with the with what I was characterizing as a kind of broad Cartesian theme, um, which was that, um, that that which we represent <laughs> as ourselves, um, we take to be ourselves. Um, uh, I think that there, there's some kind of slightly mistaken um, moves in, in that kind of line of thought, but 
uh, but you can see how it fits. Well, hopefully, if I've if I've been clear enough, uh, with both this idea of us having a flexible self-conception, but also this idea of us uh, being in the business of of representing things um, in being psychological creatures. Oh, I mean, that flexible self-conception point really reminded me of, well, reminded me of death. And it seems to be important to a lot of thinking about the mind that it might be the kind of thing that can survive death. And I'm just wondering if, if anyone would like to sort of say a bit about what role that plays in, in their thinking about it or uh, their, their chosen philosophers thinking about it. Yeah, you... Go ahead, Tim. <laughs> well, I was going to no, say, since there's silence, um, one of the slightly odd things about Darwin's work is that he doesn't seem to be bothered by death at all. Um, and there are sort of various suggestions as to why, you know, maybe maybe he's got some sort of strange materialist resurrectionist attitude at certain points. Um, generally, Darwin has this sort of gradual waning of, of any kind of religious view over the course of his life. So he starts off thinking he's going to train to be an Anglican priest and then he sort of goes off Anglicanism and then he goes off Christianity and then he goes off any kind of monotheism and then he goes off theism altogether. And in the end, he sort of peters out in this sort of um, slightly depressive agnosticism that involves saying well I just think we're just we're just fumbling around there's no sense in humans really reflecting very much uh, at all um, about you know creation or the afterlife he says that's a bit like he says that's a bit like a gorilla trying to think about Euclid um, so he just thinks it's kind of beyond us um, he, he's not an atheist uh, or he doesn't claim he doesn't think of himself as an atheist anyway um, it's odd, though, that he seems to be this this sort of strange kind of sceptical attitude that he had. Well, maybe, or maybe not a strange attitude, but this sort of sceptical um, notion of one's own limitations and even thinking about these things seems to leave him in a in a curiously sort of peaceful position, actually, at the end. Makes sense. Uh, Lauren, I take it Descartes' mind is in heaven, right? Yeah, yeah. Although I, I think there is a kind of it's a funny thing to think about. Um, so one distinction, so, so I'll, I'll talk about angels. Descartes mentions angels and um, he, for, for him, he thinks of angels as these pure intellects. Um, so there's, there's a difference between us and the angels in that we are, you know, right now, at least we're, we're embodied minds. Um, and he talks about, uh, you know, he, he describes that that intermingling, the fact that this embodied state as as not being like a sort of a sailor in a ship where you just kind of, you know, observe your body, um, but, but you're kind of intimately intermingled with it, intimately united with it. And I think, you know, the comparison between us then and, and, and the angels, you know, an angel would sort of have a relation to a body where it was one of sort of pure observation. Um, and wouldn't, for example, have sensory perceptions, wouldn't have um, imagination, memory, um, passions, um, emotions, all of these things that Descartes attributes to the union of mind and body. And so the experience of uh, a, a soul a sort of, or a pure intellect is going to be one that's, un well, it's unimaginable sort of by definition, because you can't imagine, <laughs> you can't imagine it. <laughs> um, so... Uh, it's, it's sort of a weird one to think about. I mean, I suppose, you know, maybe the angels are just sort of up there 
contemplating their clear and distinct ideas of mathematics. You know, maybe maybe heaven is just a bunch of intellects thinking about maths. I sort of I, think that, that, might so. be, that might be Descartes' heaven, um, which just, you know, it doesn't sound too bad. Um, <laughs> I suppose it's fine. Um, the other thing that I, I think is, is, is true for Descartes, he, he was very, especially to, towards um, the end of his life, he was very preoccupied with the health of the body and sort of preserving embodied life um so, so he himself was like sickly as a child and uh he later had had a daughter who died in infancy and I think that that those sort of personal experiences sort of impacted um his thinking and actually you know meant that he he was especially interested in um illness and uh you know m- making sure that we can preserve ourselves for for as long as possible um uh, so, so that's that's another thing I'll say about sort of I don't, perhaps death avoidance. <laughs> well, kind of sad given the end he did yeah. eat. Mm. Um, so just a tenuous sort of segue here from things people might see as spooky like angels and evil demons to virtual reality. Uh, Adrian, can you tell us a little bit about sort of virtual reality simulation? It seems like the popular conception of philosophy of mind or maybe some sort of cognitive science treatments of mind these days is that, is that sort of cool tech ideas can play a, a helpful role uh, well i suppose i mean well I mean, this is as much a, an idea of um uh, science fiction as uh, as actual uh, kind of present day technology um so the the matrix being as it were the the um, implementation of of um, the evil demons world created for for the ball Cartesian subject, um, but, but I guess there's a it kind of fits with a, a popular conception of virtual reality as um, aiming towards uh, creating the perfect illusion um, that that matches in every possible way um, the the patterning of stimulation that our actual environment would provide for us um, and that would uh, act in just the same ways or kind of uh, show just the same effects of our behavior as our interactions with our actual environments. Um, But real virtual reality systems aren't uh, anywhere near that that sort of standard. Um, And they, they tend to be restricted to one sort of uh, modality display, uh, just vision, say. Um, And it might be better, especially given the role of the actual content of of the the simulation, um, to think of virtual reality much more in terms of what the, the subject experiencing the virtual reality is bringing to the situation and um, see it more along the lines of um, of an experience of fiction, say, um, where you employ your uh, capacity to imagine various scenarios as plausible and mesh your perception of what fits this imaginative content um, to create some very rich experience of uh, of a plausible virtual world. Um, uh, so that's, I think, the the right way of seeing virtual reality experience. If I may put that on the table, um, but it doesn't doesn't fit as well with the evil demon. 
unless the evil demon is uh, toying with your imagination as well as other things. Well, you can imagine that it would. <laughs> <laughs> I might at this point move on to questions because there are absolutely loads. Um, so I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll read out some of the questions and just please jump in as, as you see, uh, see fit. Uh, so one question here says, uh, Carlos, I think it's used to say, so body, body, mind-body dualism seems to be universal. What could be the reason why all humans need always to think of themselves as something beyond their bodies? Is there an adaptive value to it? So the sort of kind of universality of, of dualist instincts. Yeah, I, I guess I can start. Um, I, I, yeah, I suppose, I suppose it is just really, you know what what Descartes is doing is he is just working through his his intuitions right he's sort of just thinking really hard he's just reflecting really hard on um on what it is uh that that thinking is and I and I suppose that's that's where he gets to I think he, he would agree that it's universal you know if you do all you need to do is reflect on those ideas enough and you'll you'll get to the truth in his opinion that um that the mind is something that is not not simply the brain that is something distinct from the body um but as to the adaptive question i guess tim <laughs> yeah i don't know whether i i don't I, i'd want to ask an i'd want to ask a proper social anthropologist whether it's really true that mind-body dualism is is quite so universal. I mean, obviously Descartes thinks it's true and therefore thinks everybody else ought to think the same thing as well, but whether everybody really does think that, um, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, my, my kind of um, vague understanding of some social anthropological work on how you know, non-European cultures conceive of, of the mind suggests maybe not everybody thinks of it in that way. Um, I, I think it would be hard to obviously think of an adaptive rationale for mind-body dualism. I mean, it's it's not clear why you survive better if you think the mind and body are distinct than you would survive if instead you think they're some kind of complicated union, or if ultimately you think that it's just the body expressing itself in, in particular kinds of ways. I mean, in, in fact, you might in some ways think that that would be a better way of doing things because it might lead to kind of more consistent engagement with the environment particularly if thought is sort of distributed throughout the body in the ways that adrian's kind of already drawn attention to or, or you know, at least the way that some cognitive scientists like to think about these things there can also be use in the um in the abstraction from the the, the kind of physical details of of thinking about whatever it is that is making up the mind um, so we can explain each other's behavior um, using uh, psychological terms like beliefs and desires or, or um, uh, thinking of each other as, um, as persons, which is uh, um, it's a, it's a combined, it's kind of very obvious physical entities like, uh, like human beings with these sorts of psychological capacities to, to uh, see things or to, to um, touch things, but also to, to, uh, want things and uh, uh, act in various ways that would bring about those desires, um, and there's there's no there's no tension um, seemingly created by that um, that kind of uh, way of talking about uh, others as having these sorts of mental states and processes. Um, it doesn't, it's not obviously intention with them being physical states and processes, but it picks out 
patterns that are um, uh, very, very useful for communication and for um, engagement with one another. Um, so, yeah. maybe I mean, maybe I should also say that there have been plenty of people who've suggested um, adaptive rationales for, if you like, having a rich internal life. So, um, so Popper um, is, Karl Popper is very well known for saying, look, um, here's one way you can adapt. Um, if, if you're thinking straight, you survive. And if you make a mistake, you die. Um, here's another way in which you can adapt. You effectively construct an internal simulation of what the world's like and what your views are. And you test those out against each other. So you effectively, going back to the virtual reality idea, you kind of construct your own virtual reality in your own head uh, in order to try out your ideas in a way that may allow you to learn and experiment um, without all the death needing to happen. Um, and and, it, and, and you, can, you can see that that could have survival value. Um, the, the ability to kind of run internal simulations rather than actually have to try the thing out in real life. Um, and, and maybe it's a kind of side effect of having a rich internal mental life like that at all, that you start to think of yourself as essentially a mental thing. Yeah, and following a similar line of thoughts, what you would get from, from these rich internal simulations are, are predictions about what um, you know, what's the likely cause of, of what it is that you're seeing or uh, what, what are the likely effects of something that you intend to do. Um, and you might bootstrap that, that very same process and, uh, and come up with, with some really fundamental cause yourself as, uh, as the cause of, of your thoughts and the cause of, of these, this kind of intermingling of all of these, these sensory events and, um, and actions in the world. And, um, and so, so maybe there's, there's a, a lot to it. Plenty. Uh, okay. So I have what I think is maybe a pointed question from, you know, treasured physics friendly friend of the forum, Alex Franklin. So one might think that Einstein's relativity made sense of the matter-gravity relation. So do the panelists think that the mind-brain relation is still awaiting analogous transformative discoveries? It's a good one, I think. It's a hard one. That is, I want to take a bite. That, that is a good one. Um, that's a hard one. I, I guess... So I... <laughs> I guess for for Descartes anyway, um, given his sort of the framework that he's working within, discovering sort of more and more about discovering more and more in 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 science, so sort of in, in neuroscience perhaps, discovering more and more about the brain isn't going to help because it's that's just sort of one domain of explanation this yeah as Adrian said I thought that was that was very Cartesian um this this idea that there are just sort of these different types of explanation that we can have um I suppose I'm, I'm always drawn back to, to to Descartes answer to Elizabeth which is just sort of it, it the the mind-body union is something that you experience um you know when when you stub your toe it hurts uh that that's it 
sort of that that's the explanation and that's the best you're going to get you're not going to have the kind of robust metaphysical explanation that you have in um about other questions you're not going to have the kind of robust scientific understanding that you have about about other questions um in, indeed sort of religious explain explanation is is a different category altogether as well um so there are these just sort of different kinds of explanation there are different ways of knowing things um and I suppose his answer to her was just sort of like, well, you know, we have, we do understand it because it's something we experience all the time. So what's the problem? <laughs> yeah. It sounds like we might've found the rationalist brute fact finally. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's sort of it. <laughs> okay. This is a lovely question I think from Ian. So Adrian has interestingly brought up the metaphor of mind as processing, sorry, as an information processing machine. Could Lauren and Tim talk a little about other metaphors of mine that have been influential? Thanks. Great discussion. And obviously, Adrian, if you've any to add, please do. Oh, just to add a, a small thing on the last question. Um, but, but, but there is a relationship between the mind and the brain. That is really a very interesting empirical discovery, right? I mean, it wasn't obvious to Aristotle, for example, that there was a relationship between the mind and the brain. Um, more obvious to Descartes and and you know it could be that we kind of cracked open the skull and didn't really find anything going on so um, but that's the most I would say on that um, but yeah metaphors of mind uh, maybe we need a biological metaphor or <laughs> yeah, I mean, you sort of get you, you sort of get what's sometimes uh, referred to as a series of hydraulic metaphors um, in in Darwin so um, and this is this is actually I, I mean, I mentioned in a, in a way that I didn't really explain at all that, that you don't get a lot of natural selection explanations going on in, in the expression of emotions. So, you know, Darwin says, um, you know, why do we tremble when we're scared? Um, and, and really all, all he says is, well, um, you know, being being scared is a is a very sort of turbulent experience. It's a little bit like saying, why do engines vibrate when they're revved very hard? It's it's just what happens when you've got a lot of nerve fluid uh, zooming around the nervous system very, very fast. You know, you're going to get this kind of juddering effect, basically. Um, so you, you do get these, uh, you know, in, in some ways, quite um, charming sort of uh, uh, kind of hydraulic type type metaphors cropping up uh, on, on occasions. And yeah, I mean, generally, I think it's pretty kind of well observed that people reach for whatever the the voguish type of tech is at any moment in history when they want to try to explain the mind. So now it's all deep neural networks, you know, at various points, it's clocks. Um, sometimes it's um, uh, hydraulic water systems. Yeah, on that, I guess the the tech of, of, of Descartes' time was very much the kind of clockwork, um, you know, automata moving statues when you sort of step on one pressure point, something, um, something moves. Um, and so that's something that he uses to, to talk about bodies, um, but not so much minds. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't think of, I can't think of anything he says off the top of my head about, um, some, you know, a, a metaphor to explain the mind. Um, but, but that, that point about uh, tech of the day being used to uh, as a tool of explanation is yeah is something that's true for Descartes as well very much so there's definitely a nice chicken and egg kind of musing to be done about the uh, sort of direction of influence between theories of mind and then hot tech uh, so I have a question here from Lois so she says thanks Adrian for pointing out a possibility that we may see our mind as part of a system or our surrounding how can we possibly empirically test the hypothesis 
Well, um, uh, so by making it slightly more specific, uh, for one thing. Um, uh, so if, say, um, you make it more specific by saying that, that the that internal memory systems exploit stability in um, in the relationships between structures in the body or um, the um, uh, relationship between objects in the environment in order to minimize the amount of, of information stored within neural structures, then uh, messing with that stability uh, in, in various ways um, would allow you to test that hypothesis. Um, uh, so it, um, in not a very experimental uh, setting, I might, um, I might just um, rearrange everything in your hallway um, so that the place where you normally put your keys is somewhere very, very different, or maybe just slightly different, just different enough that um, for the next few days, you have to really think about where you put your keys. <laughs> and it might slow you down. <laughs> you might make more mistakes. Right? So there's, uh, <laughs> there's a perhaps more intuitive example. Can I ask you? Can I ask Adrian actually on, on that point? Because it always seems to me that there are sort of much, there are kind of more and less radical ways of interpreting those kinds of results, right? So, so there are the, there's this work um, showing that uh, cocktail waiters um, uh, really need to place the glasses in just the right place and have all the bottles arranged in just the right kind of way uh, in order to be able to do their mixing as quickly as they want to and get the right drinks in the right place. Um, and there's one reading of that which just says, if you think they're remembering everything in their head, they're not. It's also very important the glassware is arranged properly. Yeah. There's another reading which seems to suggest some of the thinking is actually going on in the glassware, right? And, and the first one doesn't seem to obviously lead you to the second one. But some of those claims about cognition being out there in the world seem to invite those much stronger readings. And I, I just don't know. I'm yeah. interested to know where you stand on that. Where I stand on that? Um... Well, um, I, I think that all you need really is, um, is one case to make the principle, right? Um, but it doesn't look like there's anything that's, that's uh, going to be a good enough case to persuade everybody of that principle, that, um, that the mind literally extends out to include the environment. Um, uh, but there are lots of ways in which people have attacked this idea. Um, so one, one way is to, um, to think of it as a, as a matter of um, just being consistent in how we talk about these processes. So if, if, if it's something that you would say is psychological, if it goes on inside the head, then you ought to say the same for, for it being outside the head. Um, another way in which people have attacked it is to say that, um, that what you need in order to deny that it goes, <laughs> that the mind extends beyond the head, is to find some principal point of interface between the mind and the rest of the world. And it's actually really difficult to find that um, when you look at how, how deep the flows of information transfer are. Um, and, and yet another way is to look at how all of our psychological capacities fit together and, and think about how, for example, our ability to think about the world depends upon our ability to perceptually engage with the world. And that 
when we're perceptually engaging with the world. It's just the very things that are there that are a part of our experience. And so, uh, so this suggests that thinking about uh, thinking about everything psychological as something within the brain um, is uh, is mistaken, at least to some. It's heavily debated. I mean, each of those <laughs> those lines of thought. Um, That's really helpful. Thank you. This theme is kind of uh, relevant to the to the next question, so I'm going to ask you guys to weigh in on something that has proved to be this most surprisingly controversial topic of contemporary philosophy. So, panpsychism. <laughs> Uh, does anyone on the panel have any thoughts about the idea that everything has a mind or is minded, that some form of consciousness, however minimal, is universal? So. It's a, a powerful idea that promises to solve a certain kind of of. Uh, of problem by appeal to uh, what seems to be a really compelling fact, right, um, that, um, that we can be acquainted with, with uh, something um, really, really basic about our mind, our, our current conscious experience, um, and, uh, and that that has to be, you know, what we're presented with in that case has to be um, a part of any explanation of uh of of the mind and um that we can conceive of the physical world as being absent of of that really really compelling to some people anyway um phenomenological property um seems seems to be uh inconsistent with this this compelling intuition so a way of solving the problem is to, to, to put together the, the physicality with the phenomenality in such a way that, that panpsychists do. Um, but really do not take me as, uh, as presenting um, a kind of sympathetic version of their view. Um, they, they would, uh, panpsychists would probably put the point much better. Um, <laughs> Oh, well, if philosophy Twitter is anything to go by, you were very brave in just offering some kind of an answer to uh, to this theme. Yeah, so, I'm constantly trying to hedge whilst uh, <laughs> while thinking it through because of the the Twitter storm that it might uh, might use. provoke. I don't, okay, so, know, I don't know about the Twitter talk, maybe I can just uh, just weigh in an insouciant manner. But I mean, I, I, I hinted I hinted that for Darwin. Um, he sort of he does kind of flirt with something that sounds a lot like panpsychism, actually. So, you know, in this this suggestion that you should think of um, the roots of of plants as as having a kind of as having a kind of mentality. Um, it's worth noticing, though, that uh, that's partly in service of a very specific concern for Darwin, though. Right. And, and that concern is just this this. Uh, wish to suggest that um, you don't get completely special properties emerging in one species all by itself. You should expect these things to be distributed. Um, so it's kind of good news then for Darwin, if he can show that to some degree or another mentality is present right through the plant uh, and animal kingdoms. 
So that means that, I mean, without wishing to comment on whether these views are any good or not, that means that for Darwin, first of all, there's, there's, no, there's no sort of explanatory requirement on his part to suggest that everything has a form of mentality. It's just important for him to suggest the living stuff has a form of mentality. Um, and, and also, um, it's not really solving anything like the mind-body problem either. I mean, if, if you're puzzled as to how on earth anything gets to think at all, saying that, well, all the plants and animals do doesn't answer that question. Saying all the plants and animals do it is just a good way of, sh of suggesting this kind of evolutionary unity. Uh, but it doesn't really uh, get any traction in, in Darwin's version, at least, for, you know, what's called the hard problem or anything or anything like that. Thank you. Um, one, sort of, I suppose, last question, because we're, we're sort of running down on time uh, from Philippa. So quite a, a philosophical question now. So what was the impact, if any, of Gilbert Ryle's thesis in the concept of mind, arguing against Descartes' mind-body dualism on current ideas of the mind? And then she also thanks for, for such a great discussion. But yeah, especially Lauren, I'm wondering, you know, the kind of the, the state of, of contemporary Descartesianism, given kind of early 20th century criticism. Yeah, um... So uh, I'll admit that my, my understanding of Ryle is, is probably relatively basic. I know that he accuses Descartes of committing this category mistake. Um, I mean, it does just seem to me to be a kind of big misunderstanding <laughs> um, of what Descartes was, was trying to, to say. Um, but um, in, I mean, in, in terms of the, the way that, that Descartes' view is, uh, has been sort of pulled into contempt more contemporary stuff. I do think there's a, a kind of tendency to um, to bring up his name in, in in reference to a kind of caricature that is often unhelpful and that people sort of you know um, identify as being something that that's bad. You know, people talk about this kind of Cartesian hangover where we get all our bad ideas about mental health issues or um, about sort of Gender, race, uh, gender and race issues and also animal ethics um, for, for some of the, the reasons that we've already talked about. Um, I mean, I do think that uh, that sort of, well, it's, it's sort of irresponsible when philosophers do it, <laughs> I think. I think we, we, we owe it to, um, to actually work out what the position was um, and, and sort of take it seriously as such. Um, and I, I do think that um, in, in fact, uh, on things like, um, like mental health, as we've already sort of said, but this this was a topic that um, Descartes was sort of very interested in. It's something that he uh, that he talks about um, a lot, especially to to Elizabeth and uh, the, the Passions of the Soul, which is the last work that he wrote. I think you know could plausibly be seen as 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 a work that um, is relevant to mental health. Um, so uh, that perhaps that was sort of slightly tangential, um, but. Uh, I, yeah, I do think we owe it to Descartes to, um, to try and understand him um, and try and understand the position so that we don't end up with a kind of gross caricature of substance dualism that's sort of immediately shot down. Um, yeah. Oh, I think it's a really, it's a nice note to end on as well that, you know, these themes that seem sometimes to have been completely ignored early on are, are not always so lamentably addressed by, by some of the people involved. Um, so I'm, I'm really, I wish I could have gotten to more of the questions. There are absolutely loads. So thank you so much for them. Uh, but that is that is it from us. So the, the forum are finished for the summer. So we will be back in the autumn term with lots more philosophy and other topics. 
Um, but yeah, that's it from us for now. So it just remains to thank our speakers. So speakers, I'm extremely grateful to you guys for coming. Uh, and thank you very much to the audience. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and hopefully see you at another event like this soon. <laughs>